0: We turn in the Word of God to Matthew chapter 28. Matthew 28 and verses 2 to 6. Matthew 28 and verse 2 to 6. We read again at this stage. And behold, there was a great earthquake for the angel of the Lord descended from heaven, and came and rolled back the stone from the door, and sat upon it. His countenance was like lightning, and his raiment white as snow, and for fear of him the keepers did shake, and became as dead men. And the angel answered and said unto the women, Fear not ye, for I know that ye seek Jesus, which was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen, as he said, Come, see the place where the Lord lay. Amen. May God bless his word to our hearts. Verse 5 tells us, The angel answered and said unto the women, Fear not ye, for I know that ye seek Jesus, which was crucified. Our theme this evening is The Sovereign God Shaking the Circumstances of Men the sovereign God shaking the circumstances of men. The resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ and the appearance of the angel and the earthquake that accompanied this came about in the purpose of God. But then everything comes about In the purpose of God. We are told in Ephesians 1 verse eleven that He worketh all things after the counsel of His own will. In Daniel chapter four, the King Nebuchadnezzar acknowledged the Most High as he that uh, does his will amongst the armies of heaven, and amongst the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say unto him, What doest thou? There is no such thing as luck and chance as those terms are popularly used today. The reason that people talk about luck and chance as they do is that they use these meaningless terms uh, to speak of the first cause of things without acknowledging the first cause of all things, which is God. There isn't luck, there isn't chance, there's God. God has purposed and it is done. Now God can act in a way that displays his power or brings about circumstances that show how he can shake up that which to human appearances seems fixed and permanent. Things that seem as though they will never change. He can overturn them uh, so quickly. Some of us were talking about Berlin earlier on. That wall in Berlin. Who would have thought that so suddenly it would all be taken down? Or the Soviet Union or the Soviet Union. Union of Soviet Republics that it would disintegrate and so on. There are many things that seem fixed and yet suddenly in the providence of God they change. When we use the term the providence of God we mean God's most holy, wise and powerful preserving and governing of all his creatures. And all their actions. That's what we mean by the term providence. God governing everything. Governing all that there is. And all that happens. And there are no facts. And no events. That are outside of the providence of God. God's outworking of his own eternal plan and decree but as we say sometimes whether on a big scale or just in someone's individual life God can alter things that seem fixed and he can overwhelm and turn upside down that which we regarded as settled and permanent and we can be left Confused, bewildered by the awesome providence of God. And such individual events can be called providences. Individual items as it were. Although in the plan of God everything is interconnected. But for our understanding we can call these providences. Individual elements. In the plan and purpose of God. Such was the situation here. This, the resurrection of the Saviour. The movement of the stone. The earthquake. The descent of the angel of the Lord. Now these were miraculous. They were unique. They were unrepeatable events. Concerning our Saviour but even in god's more ordinary working he can confront us with circumstances that are awesome in psalm 107 we have that uh, an example of that in the what we might call the more ordinary providence of god in verse 27 Uh, This is talking about those who go down to the sea and ships. Verse 23. They that go down to the sea and ships that do business in great waters, these see the works of the Lord and his wonders in the deep. For he commandeth and raiseth the stormy wind, which lifteth up the waves thereof. They mount up to the heaven, they go down again to the depths, their soul is melted because of trouble. They reel to and fro and stagger like a drunken man and are at their wits' end. Then they cry unto the Lord in their trouble and he bringeth them out of their distresses. So here in the more ordinary workings of providence, these men at sea in ships are caused to be alarmed and in terror by the hand of God upon the waters. And so there are lessons in this passage in Matthew 28. Concerning God's awesome dealings with men. And we can look at these awesome events as they bear upon two groups of people. First of all, the keepers, (coughs) and secondly, the women. The keepers at the tomb, and the women who came to the tomb. First of all, the keepers. What do we know about these men who kept God at the tomb? We know that they were there because the Pharisees were concerned to suppress any report that the Lord Jesus had risen from the dead. They did what they could to ensure that there was no story put about that the Lord Jesus had risen from the dead. But he rose from the dead notwithstanding And these keepers, what was their character? What kind of men were they? Well, you get an indication in verse 15. So they took the money and did as they were taught. And this saying is commonly reported among the Jews until this day. They lied for money. They lied about this most unique and awesome event of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. They were ungodly men. They were unbelieving men. The transgression of the wicked saith thus within my heart, there is no fear of God before their eyes. Psalm 36 verse 1. In other words, the transgression of the wicked tells me there is no fear of God Before their eyes. And so when we see ungodly behavior. We know we're we're seeing ungodly men. So it was here. These men were ungodly. The scripture says. Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God. And it then goes on to describe the ungodly. And these men fit within that character. By their fruit shall ye know them. Their conduct showed their state that they were without hope, without God in the world. And then we may ask, what was the immediate effect of this awesome providence of God? What effect did it have upon them? In verse 4 we're told that the angel of the Lord having descended and for fear of him the keepers did shake and became as dead men. The keepers did shake and became as dead men. They shook. It's the same word, in fact, as in verse 2, when it refers to the earth quake. The earth had quaked, but the earth has stopped quaking, but they're still quaking. They shake, and they became as dead men. They were terrified. Even though the ground was no longer shaking, they were shaking. They beheld the angel of the Lord, and they trembled, and they were at their wits' end. Now we must say that their terror was fully justified. Their terror was fully justified. They had every reason to be afraid. The angel of the Lord has no comfort for them. That angel who says later to the women, Fear not ye, he does not say, that to these keepers, quaking and as dead men as they are, and at their which end they have reason to fear, they are not told, fear not ye. And the reason is that that God whose power was displayed in uh, these events, that God was their judge, and that God. Was the one who held them guilty. And they were not at peace with this God. They were not reconciled to God. Their sins were not forgiven. They had no trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so they had every reason to be afraid. At the actings of this great and terrible God. The Almighty made them afraid. By the operations of his hand. This great God, before whom they were guilty sinners, unforgiven sinners, unreconciled sinners, in His hand their latest breath was. You remember Belshazzar in his arrogance, his ungodly feast in the book of Daniel that he is told, he is weighed in the balances and found wanting, and he is told that this God, in whom, in whose hand thy breath is, him thou hast not glorified. The God in control of all things was their enemy. He is angry with the wicked every day. They had not Christ as their saviour, and so they had nothing with which to face the upheavals of this life and its end in death. In Ephesians 2, verse 12, we have a description of the unconverted man That at that time ye were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope, and without God in the world. Without Christ, you do not have God. Without Christ as your saviour, you do not have God as Your God. Oh, He's your uh, Maker. He's your Judge. You depend upon Him for your breath and for all things. But you are not at peace with Him without Christ. It says, without Christ, therefore, having no hope and without God in the world. If Christ is not our Savior, then we are not at peace with God and we have no grounds of hope that we will have a blessed future in the world to come. Rather, we are under the displeasure and judgment of God. But what was the long-term effect of this providence upon these men? In verse 15 we read earlier, So they took the money and did as they were taught. We saw this showed their character, But it shows their character even after these events. Even after this terror. When the terror had passed. They'd been afraid. They'd been as dead men. They'd been at their wit's end. And now it's all passed over. And there's no change. No change. They'd been terrified by their circumstances but not changed except for the worse. They were more hardened, more guilty than ever. Have you ever been terrified? Have you ever had your life turned upside down. You didn't know the Lord before, and you didn't know the Lord after. Terrified, shaken, but not changed. I remember once talking to a man who'd fought in the Second World War. And he had seen many things. Many of his comrades killed. There were times when he'd been surrounded by dead bodies in the trenches. And the effect it had had on him was, oh, well, I can take what comes. Well, you can't. You can't. Because whatever comes in this life, death will come, and judgment will come, and all your silly bravado will be seen in its folly. We cannot take what comes whose heart can endure and whose hands can be strong in the day that I shall deal with thee, saith the Lord. Passing terrors are not a saving chain. Remember the children of Israel at the Red Sea. They were terrified. Pharaoh's chariots pounding behind them. The Red Sea in front of them. And they cried out. God opened the sea and Moses led them through as on dry land. And when Pharaoh and his chariots sought to follow them, he brought the waters over them. And we're told in Psalm 106, and there they sang his praise, but they soon forgot that the Lord had been their Savior. These men, terrified, but when the terror passed, There was no lasting change. You know, experience doesn't necessarily make people wise, it's not automatic. These men learned nothing. Is that your condition? Despite all the circumstances of life, the dangers, the crises, still no seeking of the Lord and of his mercy. But then we have these women It is clear from the other gospel accounts that the keepers fled and then the women arrived at the tomb. Look at the words of the angel to these women. Verse 5. And the angel answered and said unto the women, Fear not ye, for I know that ye seek Jesus which was crucified. It's emphatic. Fear not ye. And there is meant to be an emphasis on that word, ye. Fear not ye. The keepers, they had reason to be afraid. But not you, not these women. It's effectively a command. Fear not ye. For when God gives ground not to fear, then it is an obligation to believe and not fear. But the grounds of these reassuring words are given also. Fear not ye, for I know that ye seek Jesus which was crucified. I know that ye see Jesus which was crucified. Why does that matter so much? That these women saw Jesus. They had an unbreakable attachment to the crucified Saviour. Their faith was weak but real. Their knowledge was poor. They went through much distress partly because of the poverty of their knowledge. Their understanding was weak, but they had an unbreakable attachment to the crucified Saviour with all the shame that that entailed. They were willing to be associated with this Jesus of Nazareth who had been crucified with all the shame Shame that crucifixion entailed, all the disgrace. Our profession might be clearer, but our attachment to the Saviour might not be as theirs. If our main interest is to maintain a normal, respectable, acceptable appearance before men, there is no real attachment to the Saviour at all. Even if we can articulate the doctrines, the devil can do that. We need to understand the truth, the doctrines of God's word. But there must be more. There must be that confidence in Christ, that dependence upon Christ for salvation that is the result of the renewing of the heart by the power of the Spirit. And the the evidence of that, it will be a willingness be associated with the foolishness of the cross of Jesus Christ in the eyes of the world but if we have genuine faith even as a mustard seed genuine faith in Christ dependence upon him alone for acceptance in the sight of God even though we are foolish and come under that reproof O ye of little faith yet even little faith if it's true faith it is of God it is the result of the renewing of the spirit of God if we are willing to depend upon Christ alone for acceptance in the sight of God then it's not natural to us it's the result of Of the new birth. The renewing of the spirit of God. And even little faith. If true. Is God given. And saving faith. And eternal glory. Is sure. And these women. Christ. The angel says to them. Fear not ye. But why does this attachment to Christ make all the difference? Why to Him? Doesn't it matter? Does it matter what exactly our religion is as long as we're sincere? Well, yes, it does, because we can be sincerely wrong and sincerely going to hell and sincerely believing a lie. Why is it? This Jesus who was crucified. Who makes all the difference. That they were attached to him. Why not to someone else? Why not to some other great religious leader? Why this Jesus which was crucified? Well we get some hints in the text. Because he is the Lord. Verse 6. He is not here. For he is risen as he said. Come, see the place where the Lord lay, where the Lord lay. Now that word, the Lord, the word translated Lord, it's a general word. It can have a, a variety of meaning, but it came to be applied to Christ in the sense of Jehovah, the Uh, Hebrew, the Old Testament Hebrew Jehovah was translated by this term rendered Lord. For example, John the Baptist when he quotes Isaiah, he quotes the Greek version prepare ye the way of the Lord and in the Old Testament in, in Isaiah the Lord is there, is Jehovah and so when it is applied here to Christ Come see the place where the Lord lay. It is speaking of Christ in the same terms as when the angel is called the angel of the Lord in verse 2. So that the angel of the Lord, eh, the Lord there is the same Lord as when the angel says come see the place where the Lord lay. The angels uh, are the angels of Jehovah and when it says come see the place where the Lord lay it's saying that he is that Lord whom the the angels worship and obey you know how in Revelation chapter 5 we have that description of the angels 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands worshiping God And the Lamb, Jehovah Jesus, the Lord Jesus, God manifest in the flesh. And that's why Isaiah 45 is taken up in Philippians 2. We might have mentioned this last time I was with you. In Isaiah 45 and verse 23. For I have sworn by myself... That the word is gone out of my mouth in righteousness. And shall not return. That unto me every knee shall bow. Every tongue shall swear. Surely shall one say. In the Lord have I righteousness and strength. And so on. Verse 23. Is fulfilled. In Christ. Jehovah is speaking. And he says. As I live. uh, The word. My word. Is The word is gone out of my mouth in righteousness and and shall not return. That unto me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear. And in Philippians chapter 2, the apostle Paul, uh, uh, he uses that verse as applied to Christ. That at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That is that he is Jehovah to the glory of God the Father. And that's why you have that formula at the beginning of nearly all the epistles. God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. You know how the epistles one after another with slight variations they use this formula for example 1 corinthians 1 verse 3 grace be unto you and peace from god our father and from the lord jesus christ then in 2 corinthians and chapter 1 and verse 2 grace be to you and peace from god our father and from the lord jesus christ and then if you move on again to galatians We have it again. Verse 3, grace be to you and peace from God the Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ. Over and over again, God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And the purpose is not to suggest that Christ is less than God. You see that in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. 1 Corinthians chapter 8. And verse 4, as concerning therefore the eating of those things that are offered in sacrifice unto idols, we know that an idol is nothing in the world, and that there is none other God but one. For though there be that are called gods, whether in heaven or in earth, as there be gods many and lords many, but to us there is but one God, the Father, of whom are all things, and we in him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we by him. Now, there, the one true God is said to include God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So the term the Lord is not meant to suggest inferiority uh, as compared with the Father. But you might say, why is it that this term Lord is so consistently used Of the Lord Jesus. If it is a divine name. Why is it that so constantly. We have God the Father. And the Lord Jesus Christ. Well the answer is. Because the name Jehovah. In the Old Testament. And Lord is the equivalent. The name Jehovah. Is a term which in itself implies the absolute, independent, eternal sovereignty and authority of God. I am. And in its associations, it is connected with God as the covenant faithful God. That's why it is used at the beginning of the account of the Exodus from Egypt. And the reason that the Lord Jesus is especially called the Lord Jehovah is because the absolute authority of God and the salvation of God are both displayed in Christ. Jehovah the Savior saves through the second person of the Godhead, Jesus Christ. And he has committed all judgment unto the Son because he is the Son of Man. And he hath appointed a a day in the which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained. Whereof he hath given assurance unto all men in that he raised him from the dead. It is in Christ that God will judge. And so the triune Jehovah shows himself as Jehovah the Savior and as Jehovah the final judge of all in Jesus Christ. And that accounts for the regularity of the formula God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Because all three persons are the one triune eternal Jehovah. But God shows himself Jehovah in salvation and in judgment in Jesus Christ the mediator and king. And when we read here, come see the place where the Lord lay. It is the Lord Jesus, Jehovah Jesus, that is in view. And yet, though he is called the Lord, though he is Jehovah, yet he was truly a man. Come see the place where the Lord lay. His human body had lain in that tomb. But the angel says, come see the place where the Lord lay. How do we understand this? Well, he's one person in two distinct natures. One person, two distinct natures. He took to himself a true body and a reasonable soul. He did not simply look like a man. Christ always was God. He never stopped being God, but he became a man. But he was still God. Two distinct natures and one person forever and that's why the divine name the Lord is used of Christ's action in his human nature come see the place where the Lord lay he was truly a man he didn't just look like a man he actually became a man that's why we read of him that he was sorrowful My soul is exceeding sorrowful. We read of him that he groaned in the spirit. That he wept. The second person of the ever-blessed God sorrowed and wept and suffered in his human nature. We spoke of this last time that when he cried out, My God, my God. Why hast thou forsaken me? And this Saviour was crucified. I know that ye seek Jesus which was crucified. This Lord Jesus, Jehovah manifest in the flesh was crucified. A shameful death. The suffering of a divine person in his human nature. In his human nature. But one person, two distinct natures. Esteemed him stricken of God and afflicted. Why did he suffer? Why is it the crucified saviour? that their attachment had to be two, in order for the angel to say, Fear not ye. Well, because Christ suffered bearing the guilt of sin, he died the just for the unjust. He was bearing the wrath of God as the substitute of guilty sinners like these women <clears throat> and non-perish who trust in him. He could not be held of death. The angel says, Come, see the place where the Lord lay, for he is risen as he said. The Lord Jesus suffered, suffered more than we can comprehend, but he could not be held of death. He is risen as he said. His resurrection declares what he cried out on the cross it is finished and the resurrection demonstrates that it is finished that he has borne the wrath of God the wages of sin to the full on behalf of guilty sinners there is now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus Those who are in Christ, they deserve condemnation. But Christ has borne the condemnation. That's why the people of God can say, for he was made sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. If if you have not this Savior, if he's not your Savior, then you are under condemnation. You're like those keepers in their terror. But for those who are in Christ, there is no condemnation. Fear not ye. And this Lord Jesus cares for his brethren. He cares for his brethren. You see that the message that he that he sends to them. And uh, verse 9 And as they went to tell the disciples behold Jesus met them saying all hail and they came and held him by the feet and worshipped him. See that? God and man. They worshipped him because he was divine. They held him by the feet because he was a man there you see the two natures then Jesus said then said Jesus unto them be not afraid go tell my brethren that they go into Galilee and there shall they see me these disciples feeble poor pathetic blundering disciples He calls them brethren, my brethren. If you're a Christian, never be ashamed to be associated with other Christians. Christ is not ashamed to call them brethren. We're told that, aren't we, in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 11 and 12. He is not ashamed to call them brethren. And then we have that quotation from Psalm 22, verse 22. I will declare thy name unto my brethren. In the midst of the church will I sing praise unto thee. You see, in Christ, we are his brethren. And his God is our God. You remember when he appeared to, to Mary and she said, Rabboni. And he said, touch me not. For I must ascend unto my Father and your Father unto my God and to your God. There is uniqueness in his relationship with the Father. But there is also, through our union with him, his Father, his God, is our Father and our God, if we're in Him. And that's why in Hebrews 11 and verse 16, we're told that God is not ashamed to be called their God. Because Christ calls His people His brethren. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ is not ashamed to be called their God. And so in Revelation chapter 21 that bond in Christ reaches its perfection in the eternal world. Revelation 21 and verse 3, And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them, and be their God. And then in verse 7, He that overcometh, shall inherit all things and I will be his God and he shall be my son. For the people of God they are heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. Through the God-man Redeemer they have God as their God and their shield and exceeding great reward. And we have this promise while we're in this world that all power in heaven and in earth belongs to our Redeemer at the right hand of the Father. Verse 18, And Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Our Lord Jesus is not well-meaning but helpless as we can be. He has the power. He is at the right hand of the Father. He governs all things in the interest of the church. The government is upon his shoulders. He is the lamb in the midst of the throne. Fear not ye. For I know that ye seek Jesus. Which was crucified. If you have Christ. All is well. You will never be separated from his love. Without him. Nothing is well. And you must seek the Lord while he may be found. But if you have Christ, all is well. Fear not ye. And we have this promise. Lo, I am with you always. All the days, literally. All the days. Those days when we think everything is going wrong. Lo, I am with you always even unto the end of the world.